0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. We are seeing an increase in regulation of the internet, and some of that regulation is justified, some of it is not.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's privacy, surveillance, law, and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben describes a class action suit against Google alleging the sale of personal data. I've got the story of a prison surveillance company keeping tabs on people outside the prison walls. And later in the show, Konstantinos Komitis from the nonprofit Internet Society on the unintended consequences of uninformed online regulatory policies. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms fedcyber that's a k a dot m s slash fed cyber all right, Ben. We've got some uh, good stories to share this week. Why don't you kick things off for us?
2: Yes. so of course, both of our stories come from the same source, Motherboard from Vice. Mine is by a <laughs> uh, long-lost friend of the pod, Joseph Cox. Another right. one way oh, another one-way friendship.
1: yeah. We really need to send him a fruit basket.
2: I know. (laughs) Christmas slash Hanukkah purchases next year for Mr. Cox and and Professor Kerr. Going to run up quite a tab. But this article is about a class action lawsuit filed by a couple of academic types on behalf of them and millions of other people. Hmm. And the lawsuit alleges that Google is selling users data contrary to the way that they present themselves in public. So the lawsuit centers around what is known as real-time bidding data. So companies place bids to win advertising space on both, you know, google.com and every website that uses Google's advertising services. So it's expensive and valuable to get that space during people's web browsing sessions. There's sort of an auction format. There's this bidding process where hundreds if not more companies will bid to get that advertising space. There are a couple of issues with this as it relates to personal data. Even if you don't win the bid, you're still going to get access to what they refer to as a dossier of data on the individual that you're trying to gain access to. So you can join the bidding process without the intention of actually winning, just to obtain extremely valuable and potentially personal information on people so that, that you can target them for future advertising.
1: Right. Let let me just pause for a second, back up and and sort of explain it the way I understand it, just for a point of, of clarity, that basically Google has this service where they reach out to these advertisers and they say, hey, I got a slot on this website Uh, And the person viewing this website has all of these attributes. They live in this country. They make this amount of money. They have these uh, religious affiliations. They have these medical conditions. They may be married. They may be divorced. There, There are thousands of, I believe Google calls them verticals, that they slot you into. And they send all that information about the potential person to put the ad in front of. To the person who's bidding, to the organization that's bidding, and they say, This is what we got. Are you interested? And the bidders respond and say, Oh, yeah, that's exactly who I want to put my message in front of. And they make a bid. And all this happens in milliseconds. It's all automated.
2: Right. Um, There's not a little but, guy behind the screen constantly. Right. <laughs> it's like, ooh, <laughs> it's I really not, want this yeah. Dave Bittner no, guy. It's not, yeah. Right.
1: It's not like this, the stock market or something, you know, I mean, where you see a bunch of people on the the floor, of. The, even though, I mean, that's mostly automated these days, too. So it happens in the blink of an eye, literally. But the point that they're making here is that I think the direction of the flow of information, it's, it's not like... The people who are looking to place the ads are saying, hey, Google, I would really like to put this in front of a person with these attributes. And then Google says, oh, yeah, I got one of those. And and then that's how it happens. No, Google goes out with the attributes and says, hey, I've got a person and they've got all these attributes, including their IP address, yep. right? Uh, location information. And that's how it works. So continue, Ben. <laughs>
2: So yeah, that gives you an idea of how uh, all of these companies are collecting what they call bid stream data. And the number of companies collecting this data, it's potentially hundreds or thousands. Because like I said, there are companies that join these bidding wars with no intention of winning. They just want to get a bite uh, out of this apple.
1: Right. They're vacuuming up that user information, that surveillance information.
2: Exactly. So maybe one of the big companies is going to win the actual advertising slot, but another company might... Enter and then obtain your data, your IP address, your location information, and maybe sell that to, you know, a local law enforcement department in your area or the federal Mm -hmm. government, the Department of Defense. So there's certainly the potential here for abuse. And that's the basis of this lawsuit. It's being filed in the Northern District of California. So it's a federal court. And it's a class action lawsuit, meaning you're going to have to have a class of plaintiffs that's similarly situated. And this is sort of your perfect class action case. Uh, Hmm. Because since we know this is automated and we know that we're talking about a universe of millions of people who have these little dossiers compiled about them and sent to these companies, the facts are really identical as it relates to all plaintiffs. Usually when you're talking about class action suits, the big first hurdle is, can you find enough plaintiffs that are similarly situated? Because Companies have been successful in lobbying Congress and the courts to make it very hard to file class action suits. So this case has an advantage, I think, over uh, other class action suits. In terms of the merits, they are alleging violations of a bunch of different statutes, including California's unfair uh, commercial practices statute, the implied covenant of fair dealing, a potential invasion of the California constitutional breach of confidence. All of these things that imply basically fraud on the part of Google because they present themselves as we do not sell your data and right. if this if the facts in this article are to be believed that is a misrepresentation another yeah. word for it would be lying
1: I was going to say, Ben, dial down your lawyerly words, Ben. (laughs) It's a lie. It's a lie. (laughs) Yes. Luckily, you know,
2: you have to be very careful using that word in a court of law. But I think on a podcast, (laughs) we don't have to bleep that out.
1: Okay. I don't know. I get gobsmacking maybe is just how if what they're alleging is true. I mean, Google makes the point many, many times throughout the the documents that you are supposed to read that, of course, nobody does. But they say, front and center, we do not sell your personal information to anyone. And according to this lawsuit, that's just not true.
2: Yeah. And I should also mention, this is not the first time we've seen these allegations. The senator we bring up most on on this podcast, Mr. Ron Wyden of Oregon, has sent Mm -hmm. a letter to the FTC last summer, basically alleging the same thing. Uh, And I'm, I'm quoting here, few Americans realize that companies are siphoning off and storing bitstream data to compile exhaustive dossiers about them, including web browsing, location, uh, and other data, which are then sold by data brokers to hedge funds, political campaigns, and even to the government without court orders. So that's sort of the breadth of the potential danger here. But it's one thing, you know, obviously a senator sending a letter to the FTC can have a pretty profound effect— when you start talking about a class action lawsuit, that might actually be something that would get Google to change its behavior. Hmm. Uh, and this article notes that the law firm representing the plaintiffs here has actually had success in winning settlements from big companies. So it's possible all of us are going to get you know three dollars in our bank account, in three <laughs> or well, four years yeah. for the for the data that's been collected. <laughs>
1: Oh, goody and the and the lawyers will buy a new vacation home. <laughs> so,
2: I mean those vacation homes aren't going to purchase themselves,
1: yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, explain some of the details here because as as a class action suit, it is not a criminal allegation, right?
2: no, it's a it is a civil case, yep,
1: okay. So what they're after here is both money and could they also be after an agreement from Google to change their behavior?
2: Yeah, so they're looking for both uh, potential money, damages, and also Mm -hmm. perhaps an injunction which would force Google to stop engaging in this behavior. The original brief that was posted as part of this article is actually more of a preliminary brief that's simply asking for a jury trial. And not to get too much into the weeds here, the Seventh Amendment of our Constitution guarantees a a jury trial for civil trials, uh, but that has not been incorporated against the states. So there's Mm -hmm. no guarantee uh, to a jury trial in most states on civil matters. And, you know, I think the reason they're looking for a jury trial here is this is something that could be very sympathetic to the six lay people who would be considering a, a civil case on this matter. Uh, yeah. Because those six individuals very likely are are Google users – And they themselves have probably uh, been a victim of this data being siphoned off. Now, knowing that, that could potentially, you know, if the court grants this motion for a jury trial, that might motivate Google to say, you know, our chances aren't very good in the courtroom. Let's settle this. Usually, I I would say the settlement uh, would come with an injunction just because damages might not be adequate relief for consumers uh, when you divide it when you you divide the damages by the millions of people who use Google. So I think an injunction forcing Google to stop engaging in this behavior might be the end goal here on behalf of the plaintiffs.
1: I guess big picture too. I mean, this points to this larger trend that we're seeing where folks are uh, going after these large companies that are vacuuming up all this information and trying to get some relief here.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting. We've talked about a number of these cases, but even in the last like three or four months, we've seen a lot of lawsuits filed against our biggest tech companies for privacy-related issues. And I'm just kind of curious how many of these cases are going to break through because certainly it won't be all of them. So, you know, I'm just curious. And this seems like one of the more compelling cases to me, um, Mm -hmm. as you said. Mm -hmm. So I I think uh, this is certainly one that we're going to be watching out for.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, my story this week also comes from uh, Motherboard uh, over on the Vice website. This is written by Aaron Gordon, uh, and it's titled, Prison Mail Surveillance Company Keeps Tabs on Those on the Outside Too let's say you have a friend or a loved one who is behind bars, who's doing time. And one of the ways you keep in touch with that person is writing letters. And this is a, a method, I suppose, as old as people being in prison. Yep. It's a sort of a, a standard, understood, accepted sort of process that those letters get read by the, the folks who are guarding the prisoners to make sure that you're not Planning a prison break, or doing something you know, yeah. doing something you shouldn't be doing. You so gotta that, speak that's in an, code when
2: you write those letters,
1: right? It's an accepted thing. Yeah. What this article is about is a, a company called Smart Communications, who's been offering up a service for prisons where they will ingest all of the mail coming to prisoners. They will scan it, and then they will make those scans available to the prisoners to read. And uh, there are a number of benefits to this. Among them, they say this could cut down on uh, contraband, making it to prisoners, um evidently there was a, a story about uh, i guess folks it, it's sort of funny they mentioned it in this article folks trying to i guess embed the paper with cannabis you know yeah. like thc and things like that it, it seems like maybe that story's been debunked so there might not be something to that but but it's the kind of thing that you could see you know, if someone were able to do that okay not not having the actual paper get to them it might have some value but the other thing that this company is claiming to do, and I should mention in this article, uh, they they got their hands on a proposal from Smart Communications to, I believe it was the Virginia Department of Corrections. Yes. And they would scan all of this information, but also analyze it, uh, do you know OCR on it, and put everything in a database so... Every letter that gets written, you know, who wrote it, where it came from, how frequently it was, the contents of it, all are now searchable. And Smart Communications makes the case that this allows for cross-referencing of things. You can establish associations, perhaps gang activity, things like that through the use of this database. Now, uh, the flip side of this, folks are, are pushing back and saying, you know, you know, If you're someone who is in prison, who has committed a crime and you're in prison and you are in good faith trying to pay back your debt to society, you know, one of the things that could uh, be a, a strong uh, encouragement for you to stay on the right path might be these interactions with your loved ones. You know, imagine a, a crayon drawing from a child, right. you know, something like that. To actually have that in your hands, in your child's own hands, you know, that artwork, that could have a lot of meaning to someone, right. uh, much more than viewing a scan of it on a computer screen. Uh, and so the case is being made that denying prisoners that might not be fair to them, to, to their rights as as a prisoner. But beyond that, I think the bigger issue here is building this big database of who's communicating with whom and of people who are not in prison. <laughs> These are people who are on the outside merely sending a letter through the U.S. Postal Service.
2: Yeah, we expect that people who are incarcerated, who have been sentenced, are going to lose some of their rights. That's uh, right. that's kind of the definition of being put behind bars. Uh, yeah, but we don't yeah. expect that those rights will be deprived of innocent people who just happen to be communicating with people who are incarcerated. And I think mm. that's that's the concern here. I mean, it is, as you say, really two separate issues. You have what I think is kind of the more sensitive and compelling issue to me is the kind of lack of autonomy, privacy, expression, and associational rights, Um, and those are in the words of a representative of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, among people who Mm. want to communicate with loved ones. They are losing that privilege, and it could be for things that are sentimental, like that letter sent from, that that crayon drawing sent from a child. You do really lose that connection. And then there's the fact that innocent people are being caught up in this new dragnet surveillance tool which is potentially collecting, you know, rather personal information about people who don't think that their personal information is being collected. They think they're sending a letter. So you really have those two separate issues here. I think one of the problems uh, in this case and in many other cases is the organizations themselves, smart communications in this instance, are so tight-lipped about how this actually works They will refuse to comment for articles like this. They'll note, you know, this proprietary arrangement with the Department of Corrections, you know, and I think that creates more questions when you seem like you're trying to conceal so much about how a program works. I think that naturally leads people to become a little bit more suspicious, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. saying this is confidential, this is a trade secret that almost casts more of a shadow on why and how this technology is being used.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the article points out that the Virginia Department of Corrections opted not to go with this company, but uh, they did track down some other correctional facilities, organizations, counties who had gone with them, and... Uh, uh, with mixed results, some of them I think expressed frustration that it, it just didn't go very well. Um, I'm sure they have other clients who are probably quite pleased with what they offer. I don't know what to make of this. On the one hand, I can see the value in it, but like you say, it's I, I guess it's that uh, that slippery slope of yet another place for for data to be, you know, gathered up uh, and <laughs> monetized.
2: Right. This is not any sort of legal analysis. It just kind of strikes me the wrong way. You know, yeah. you have people who are trying to have intimate communications. Then you have this middleman coming in, introducing a management console and uploading files as a PDF that people can view on devices. I mean, I I almost feel like that defeats the purpose of a lot of mail in the first place, that sort of personalized mm-hmm. aspect of it that really was written by the person who who signed the letter. So it just, it strikes right. me the wrong way in that regard. And, you know this is a company, uh, at least uh, according to the filings that have been uh, shared with Motherboard here, uh, that's going to make millions of dollars based on this type of arrangement. I mean, there's a profit-seeking opportunity. Of course, obviously it is. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. But that's just another yeah. reason why it kind of rubs me the wrong way.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's uh, they do note that um, they charge the people who are sending the mail. They say they charge 50 cents per message and a dollar per photo, for the people who are sending it so the prisoners don't have to pay that but the the loved ones who are sending it do and you know that could be an undue financial burden on people who may not be uh, in a position to to pay that. You know, the price of a stamp is one thing, but to limit the number of photos you send along because they're a, a buck a pop, it's just another, I guess, another little bit of, of insult to injury, if you will.
2: Yeah, I mean, it also kind of seems like an equity problem to me. There should be an added cost on what I think should be a basic right for people outside the prison walls to communicate with inmates. Um, right. And you are just adding this extra 50 cents to a dollar on top of what you already have to pay for a stamp.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, that's from uh, Vice Motherboard uh, site on Vice there. And uh, we'll have links to both of those stories uh, in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call in and leave a message. The number is 410-618-3720. You can also send us email. It's caveat at cyberwire.com. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Konstantinos Komitis. He's from a nonprofit called the Internet Society. Uh, And our uh, discussion focused on... Unintended consequences of online regulatory policies. Here's my conversation with Konstantinos Kamaitis.
0: I think the conversation regarding regulation of the internet has changed dramatically over the past few years. And uh, I would predict that it's going to continue changing over the next few years. What I mean by that is that, you know, 25, 30 years ago, when the internet emerged as a, a technology with great potential, If you remember, a regulation or any discussion of regulation was a little bit of an anathema. We have John Perry Barlow's, of course, Declaration of Independence, because the Internet was seen as this tool that is somewhat untouchable from all the bad and evils uh, of the world. Over the years, because the Internet evolved, societies evolved, the nation state has changed, and a lot of geopolitical shifts have also taken place, we are seeing an increase in regulation of the internet and some of that regulation is justified some of it is not but it all comes down to this whole idea that the nation state actually starts uh, getting more involved in the internet i think that is the main difference in comparison to how things used to be in the beginning if you want governments were not really understanding a lot about the internet but There have been some crucial events, the Arab Spring being one of them, the Snowden revelations being another one, where it has been quite a shock to the system for many of the governments because they were able to understand the potential and the power that the Internet holds. So, of course, as it always happens, and, you know, it's pretty standard uh, procedure, if you wish, they said, I want a piece of that pie as well.
1: I hear people talk about this notion of a splinter net, you know, where you talk about things like the Great Firewall of China and some of the restrictions Russia places on the Internet. And, And indeed, even, um, you know, as we're seeing right now, the restrictions, uh, in Myanmar, where access is limited. Does that threaten the global nature of the Internet itself? I mean, is that countries are, are taking these sorts of actions?
0: Absolutely. And I think that's what's interesting to note here is that we have different levels of splinternet, if you wish. In the beginning, again, we were focusing on or we were thinking that the great firewall of China is a way to splinter the internet. Then came Russia, where uh, which it introduced some a little bit more draconian measures uh, when it came to the way information was supposed to flow. I'm not sure whether you remember a few years back, this whole LinkedIn saga and then the saga with Telegram as to, you know, and the data localization practices uh, that policies better get that Russia wanted uh, to impose. But recently, uh, I think that again, Splinternet is taking a completely different dimension. And even though it's not, necessarily intentional the way at least we see it in China or in uh, coming out of China or Russia, it still has the same effect. Uh, regulation that is coming out of Europe uh, could potentially uh, become part of the problem vis-a-vis splintering the internet. The GDPR for instance, is was a very good uh, and very well-intentioned uh, regulation. The spirit of the law was absolutely great. talked about privacy, talked about the ability of users to control their data. Who doesn't want that? We have been having this conversation for many years. However, when we went into the implementation and enforcement details, there we saw some issues emerging. And one of those issues was the potential fragmentation that it caused to the internet simply because some websites that decided not to comply with the GDPR, which meant that they're not resolvable in Europe. So. What I'm trying to say is that we should start thinking of the potential of a much less global internet, which is actually the case, not only at the extremes when a government shuts down the internet, you've mentioned Myanmar, In India, we had exactly the same. In parts of Africa, we are having exactly the same, or when China or Russia are doing something that is contrarian to the way we understand uh, governance structures. But we also need to start thinking of those well-intended regulations that fail perhaps to understand the technology and the architecture of the internet and unintentionally create those consequences that could lead to a much less global interoperable and open an internet.
1: Yeah, you, you make a, a fascinating point, which is that uh, this notion that the internet is not a business sector, that it's closer to an ecosystem or, or even a built environment. Can, can you take us through that line of thinking?
0: Sure. So the Internet, we keep on saying and we keep on repeating that the Internet is a complex system and we don't go through the process of trying to explain exactly what that means. When we talk about an ecosystem, we talk about a system that is constantly evolving and the Internet in many, many ways is very similar. So it is difficult to understand the challenges uh, of the internet, unless you really st- take a step back and look at the internet in a much more holistic way and you you stop treating it as a monolith. And I think that this is where the disconnect, if you want, with the nation state or governments for, occurs. I read this fascinating book by uh, James C. Scott, uh, Seeing It Like a State, and there he argues that the key role of states is to make more of life legible. Uh, essentially to better record and measure human affairs, uh, like for instance, taxation, and then which makes it easier to manage those affairs, right? But he goes on to say that this drive for legible or readable structures that can easily be understood often comes with with one fatal flaw, and that is in the top-down drive to simplify and formalize our understanding of complex systems, we sometimes disregard the local and practical knowledge that are critical to managing this complexity. And he offers this great example of scientific forestry, right, where uh, essentially he says that in an effort to change the state, in an effort to change the structure of of, of forests in order to get the best out of it, essentially it did destroy the forest, but the the implications and the consequences were only visible many, many, many years uh, later. So now think of the internet it is a decentralized network of networks it is more complex and fast moving than we can fully appreciate so any attempts to engineer it by applying notions of sovereignty that we see popping up a lot or regulation right are bound to pose unintended consequences and they risk killing the very things that make the internet valuable so all in all to say that There needs to be a much better understanding of what we mean with the term Internet, because one of the things that really frustrates me is that we all use the term, but I'm not sure we all have the same understanding.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating idea, and I'm thinking about something in terms of like climate science. If I'm a nation who's doing my best to uh, reduce my impact on the climate, but the, the nation next door is, you know, opening a, a new coal-fired power plant every day, well, we share the same climate, <laughs> you know, like we and, and the borders are, are kind of meaningless if if that uh, you know uh, soot comes over the border via the air, and and I wonder if if that metaphor applies to what we're talking about here with the internet?
0: It's funny you've mentioned the climate because for the past couple of years, I myself believe that there are some lessons to learn from uh, environmental governance. Again, if you think uh, about the environment 25, 30 years ago, nobody was really caring, right? Caring to the point that we see now Uh, organizations and businesses and and civil society really caring and taking a stance uh, on the environment. And Suddenly, we came face to face with a situation that was almost irreversible. So we all came together, collaboration became key, a clear understanding of what climate change in the environment means also became key, and then regulations became a reality that actually started conducting an impact assessment analysis on how uh, that regulation, that specific regulation at any given time would affect the environment. So in this context, I think that environmental governance offers us a cautionary tale. Again, we are at a stage where there is a lot of ample regulation and we know that it's chipping away slowly, the values and the benefits of the internet. One of the things that uh, I was told by some engineers, and it has really, really stuck with me was that if the internet is gonna die, it's not gonna die of one cat. It's gonna die of a thousand cats. And uh, And this is where we are headed in some ways, right? There is this wave of regulation uh, that is constantly happening around the world. and in many and in some ways, there is even a regulatory competition amongst governments. If this trend continues without us, reaching consensus right, on how best to collaborate and under what principles and under what values we want to collaborate, things might be irreversible. So it is important as we move forward, because this regulatory activity is not going to end, of course, as we move forward, I think it becomes more and more crucial to start calling and start demanding those impact assessment analysis to take place within internet regulation. Because I really do not want to find ourselves in the position where we are told, you know what, the situation is a little bit irreversible and you might need to live with an internet that is less global, less open, less interoperable, and where less innovation is happening.
1: I mean, do you suppose we need some sort of international effort, you know, a a Geneva Convention for the Internet?
0: That's a very interesting question, and there has been quite a a bit of a discussion with that over the years. I think that one problem with moving too fast with any sort of international agreement is that we are not amongst ourselves very much aware of what we want to protect and what are the principles and the core properties, if you want, of the the internet that we want to protect, right? That is the first thing. The second thing is that international agreements have the tendency of being extremely bureaucratic and extremely slow. And by the time we get to that agreement, we don't know what the internet might look like. Mm. And then there is also a third part where I think it is mostly reserved uh, in a technology like the internet. It was not a creation of one person or one entity or of one country. The internet is an outcome of collaboration. And unfortunately, if we start looking at international law and the places where international law is happening, those are very much reserved for one group, which is governments, and that's okay. But it really begs the question whether those are the appropriate fora for decisions about a technology where knowledge and know-how is spread across a, a diverse set of stakeholders is good to happen with this you know, monolithic uh, institution that only reserves places for governments.
1: What would your message be to legislators here in the United States who are trying to take on some of these issues?
0: Understand the internet. And if you don't, ask around. There are a lot of people that know and will be able to explain to you. You need to find, I think that governments is very important for them to find their starting point who do they want to be when it comes to the internet? Do they want to be a government that upholds an open, interoperable, global uh, internet? If that is the case, then they really need to understand that those things are not a given and they should not be taken for granted. And therefore, a good, a very good starting point in order to be able and demonstrate your commitment to those things would be to actually do an impact assessment analysis and see how your regulation, A, could, does or does not better yet affect the architecture of the internet. And B, is it as focused as you think it is? And does it address the, the problem that you wanted to address? Because one of the things that we again see over and over again um, with uh, regulation, with recent regulation is that we are trying to address societal problems through technical fixes. And that rarely works, as we all know. So we need to understand that the internet is a very particular and a fascinating technology that is based on some very, very robust and fundamental uh, properties. And once you start understanding that and you take steps to protect them, then regulation even uh, becomes easier because you are able to focus and you are able to say, okay, I still have the technology. So now this is my problem and I can squarely focus on on that, on on solving that because my regulation has not affected the technology by creating unintended consequences.
1: All right, Ben, what do you think?
2: So very interesting conversation. I think there are unintended consequences of well-intentioned regulation. You know, one Mm -hmm. thing I came across in the the conversation is that the internet is still relatively new and it, you know, kind of attained this uh, mystical status for the first 20 or so years of its existence that it's we, we're dealing with such a vast you know amount of information that can travel instantly you know we're granting access to information for the first time to billions of people this is awesome like why don't we do anything to try and curtail this in any way right and now right. over the last you know 5 to 10 years We're seeing, okay. now we're starting to discover the excesses of this, whether it's (laughs) consequences, you know, to people's personal privacy or what we've seen with Russian disinformation campaigns.
1: Right, It could be the end of democracy. Yeah. China stealing (laughs) trade secrets.
2: Um, So I think what he was getting at is we just have to strike a balance, not regulation for regulation's sake, still trying to preserve that original free spirit of the Internet but doing Mm -hmm. so in a way that helps us avoid some of these more negative consequences.
1: I mean, it's such a tough balance to to strike though. There's a natural tension there that I suppose in the end is probably a good thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that tension is a good thing. I don't think we should just be rubber stamping any proposed regulation of the internet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's why we have these institutional bodies. You know, it was the European Union and its institutions that developed GDPR, our Congress that has been slow, but has eventually come up with ways of regulating the excesses uh, of the internet. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, it is always about striking those balances.
1: Well, again, our thanks to Konstantinos Kamaitis from the Internet Society for joining us. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense.